Welcome to The Movie Passport, a podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of Denmark. My name is Duncan, or Belkorist on the internet, and joining me to chat about Danish cinema, we have... Uh, my name is Patrick, Patrick the Tall, Dane extraordinaire. <laughs> my name's been at 007, I'm not extraordinary at all, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Before we get into our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of Denmark and its film industry. And uh, as Dane extraordinaire, Patrick, please correct me or add anything uh, if I've missed anything. So I certainly will if you if you're wrong. Thank but, you. Yeah, no, yes. Go on. Feel free to uh, <laughs> jump in like a Viking jumping on the shore at any moment. Um, Denmark is a Nordic country located in northern Europe. It's been inhabited since the Ice Age, though most of its original population, including the Jutes tribe, migrated south. The North Germanic tribe, known as the Danes, settled in the early AD. They practiced a religion known as Norse paganism, worshipping gods like Odin and Thor, before gradually converting to Christianity in the Middle Ages. From the 8th to the 10th century, Denmark and the wider Scandinavian region was a source of Vikings, a seafaring people who raided, colonized, and traded throughout the world. The Danish monarchy spent much of the 14th to 18th centuries competing with and fighting wars against the neighboring states of Norway, Sweden, and Germany. After a series of crippling defeats, Denmark eventually adopted a policy of neutrality and remained non-combatants during the two world wars. Uh, the contemporary Danish realm consists of the peninsula of Jutland, or Jutland, maybe, uh, as well as Greenland and an archipelago of over 400 islands. Denmark's geography is characterized by flat farmland and sandy coasts, while its climate ranges from cool, pleasant summers to freezing winters. Culturally, it retains strong links with its Scandinavian neighbors and is one of the most developed and socially progressive societies in the world. Danish cinema dates back to the late 19th century, when the photographer Peter Elfelt made a series of documentary films about life in the country. In 1906, the Nordisk Film Company was established in Copenhagen. It exported short and full-length features to the international market, helping make Denmark one of Europe's most prosperous film centers. Unfortunately, this prosperity waned as America began to dominate the market. Carl Theodore Dreyer emerged in the first half of the century as one of the country's most celebrated directors, producing acclaimed works such as The Passion of Joan of Arc, Day of Wrath, and Gertrude. During the 1960s, Danish films became increasingly erotic, attracting high viewership overseas, and as a natural progression, Denmark was the first country to completely legalize pornography. In 1972, the Danish Film Institute was founded. It helped revitalize the sagging industry and by the 1980s was responsible for almost all domestic productions. However, some filmmakers, such as Lars von Trier, criticized the Institute for being overly conservative and nationalistic. In an act of artistic defiance, he and Thomas Vinterberg launched the Dogma 95 Manifesto, which they described as a, quote, vow of chastity, 
taken by directors to concentrate on the purity of story and actors' performances rather than the special effects or other cinematic devices. The first two Dogma films, The Celebration and The Idiots, met with great attention and acclaim. The manifesto has since been adopted by, by filmmakers around the world. The turn of the century marked the emergence of several more influential Danish filmmakers, including Suzanne Bier, Anders Thomas Jensen, and Nicholas Winding Refn. It also marked the debut of actor Mads Mikkelsen, who starred in the Pusher series, After the Wedding, A Royal Affair, and The Hunt, and has gone on to international stardom. Historically, Danish films have been noted for their realism, religious and moral themes, sexual frankness, and technical innovation. So, my first question to you guys is, have you watched many Danish films, and uh, what is your connection to Denmark? Well, I have a, I have a connection to Denmark as being a Dane. I think I've watched several movies. It's like, if you, if you would put a movie on in, in school, like, whichever other country, you would probably do it in your own language, and that's basically the same thing. So, even some of the movies that I don't, not normally would watch, I have watched because... <clears throat> they like have some sort of educational or ideological purpose uh, in showing. So that's one of the ways I've, I've been I've engaged. And uh, and then there's a certain few um, directors that just appeal a lot to to uh, to to my movie tastes, especially mm -hmm. the creators behind uh, Flickering Lights and Green uh, Butchers and all all those movies. Um, so so yeah, uh, let's just say I, I I have a fair amount of experience and I have a specific taste, but uh, I've watched you know a wide range of Danish movies just because I had to mostly, but also most of them are good, so no no problem there. Thank you. What about you, Bina? Have you seen many Danish movies before this podcast? Yeah, so I think like a lot of people who are outside the country, my experience of Danish film and a lot of foreign film tends to be what is curated in art house cinemas. So um grew up watching a lot, lot of dogma films, have views positive and negative variously about Lars von Trier. Hmm. Loved his TV show Kingdom, think of the work of genius, issues around films like Mandalay. Like I, I like he's amongst some of the best and worst films I've seen. Um, love the work of Thomas Vinterberg and then more mainstream, obviously everyone at some point in the nineties watched watched the Pusher trilogy. Um, and it wasn't until comparatively recently that I went back. I think um, the British Film Institute curated a season on Dreyer, if that's how you pronounce it, and saw Ildat. So, yeah, definitely more art house stuff because that's what makes it here. I think I think it's like ridiculous that and amazing that such a small country punches so far above its weight in the history of groundbreaking cinema and cinema traditions, like technology, philosophy, like just moving the genre forward and i think it probably speaks to the fact that there's really amazing um funding for young innovative um directors and for art house cinema in denmark i think it's it's kind of a country that just does this really well and i'm always kind of keeping an eye out for whatever comes out of there so that's it thanks Bina. Um, yeah, I hadn't had a lot of uh, experience with Danish cinema beforehand. Um, I think there was one week in university where they talked a bit about the Dogma 95 Manifesto and there was a screening of the celebration. Um, it, it was just, it was like something I'd never seen before. Um, and I enjoyed the unique sort of quality of that film. 
Um, but it definitely made me very uncomfortable, which is generally how I feel about, oh, that was by Thomas Vinterberg, but generally about yeah. Lars von Trier. His films feel very assaultive at times and there's interesting elements of it, but a lot of it feels exploitative as well. Um, but then, of course, the Pusher trilogy, which I loved, is some of my favorite crime films. Um, all three films in that series is awesome. And a lot of um, Nicholas Winding Refn films I've really enjoyed since his move to America. Let's just get out of the way. It's, it's uh, Raffen. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's not get bogged down about, about the pronunciations of things. Just do it do your way. Do it your own way. But yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, just just preface this uh, in general if anyone's listening uh, who, who has a knowledge in Danish as well it's really difficult to, for foreigners to pronounce Danish words and usually in Denmark we uh, we are fairly good as a, as a general as a whole population at speaking English so you don't people who go to Denmark or try to learn the language you don't really get a chance of you know really immersing themselves in, in language so in general it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that much um, most people will be able to to know what you're saying, but it's but some of most of the uh, you know the the names and stuff they have specific twang Danish twang you have to use if you want to go very close to the mm-hmm. real thing. But mm-hmm. for for for, uh, for this podcast, I think we're uh, <laughs> we're okay, uh, especially if, yeah uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy to give it a go, um, but I struggled no, no, no. prior to the podcast with uh, with uh, replicating your pronunciation. Um, it is a tricky. You wouldn't think necessarily that it'd be tricky, given that it's a European language, but it is. It is really hard for me to to get around some of those vowels and consonants. Um, and I think you were saying that the Danish have like an English word or an English pronunciation for words, and then a proper Danish pronunciation for word, which is nice of them. Yeah. Yeah, the proper names in general of, of Denmark is, has like a separate way of, you know, there's an English way. You, you, where I come from is Hilsinger, which is Elsinore, uh, where Hamlet Castle is. Um, and, and all of those proper names, all those areas, they have their, like an English pronunciation of the the, uh, the, wor- the word um, that you would know if you if you studied map, foreign maps of, of Denmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 most of us are pretty well well versed in in the the different proper names of uh, like English proper names of of, uh, <laughs> of our country because it's easier just to you know communicate uh, with foreigners that way yeah than sure. trying to say it the other way no worries and I'm not sure if I made the point clear that's the point is really that uh, if you go ever go to Denmark you will not be allowed to, to try to do your best in in pronouncing because people will just switch to English. So <laughs> keeping in that you know sense, uh, you will we will just uh, act like you're a visiting Denmark right now and and keep it in in English pronunciations all the way through. That, that's a nice host that doesn't even give you the opportunity to embarrass yourself. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into our main discussion. So each host has chosen a film. Um, uh, either set in Denmark or about Denmark. Um, and I believe, Patrick, you'll be telling us about our first film. Yes. Well, I've chosen uh, Flickering Lights by Anos Thomas Jensen. Uh, that's the Danish way of pronouncing it. Um, and um, it's a movie uh, that's set in like 
it's it's like late nineties, early two thousands. It's a movie about uh, four men uh, who um, who, for several reasons, choose to go in hiding from a, from a gangster, and they go in hiding in the, in Jutland, which is sort of like uh, the country area of Denmark, um, with with a couple million uh, krona. And uh, to begin with, they just hide out, and but uh, later on they uh, they come to find connections in the area with people who live there, and uh, end up actually liking it and and staying. That's a sh- short preface, but the movie is more like uh, it's like a comedy slash drama, uh, and and it, it's one of the movies uh, in general that that heralded heralded the like a a new way of, of, of doing comedic dramas in, in Denmark. There's a, specifically Anna Thomas Jensen. He, he does a lot of um, movies where it's so absurd, so so weird, um, that uh, that you sort of get swept up in the, the absurdity and, and laugh at stuff that really shouldn't be funny, but it is funny because it's presented in that way. Um, a lot of violence, a lot of... Uh, uh, really broken people that you end up loving at the end. Um, other movies in, in, in that range is uh, The Green Butchers and uh, Adam's Apples, but I chose the first one because it's so you know seminal for, for that genre in Denmark. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I, I literally just finished it hours before the podcast, and um, it was an interesting film. I think I enjoyed the premise of the film more than, like, the later parts of the film like I, I think maybe part of it was i had a different expectation i thought it was going to mm. be the story of a bunch of criminals turning their life for well i guess it sort of was in a way like turning themselves around and like finding a love of cooking and a love of taking care of people and sort of not exploiting people but like connecting with a community and giving back to a community or whatever but it really wasn't that like it starts off with this very sort of sentimental romantic coda like you know, imagine this this restaurant that just has a beautiful atmosphere, and you can see the the staff looking on with satisfaction. And then I kept waiting for the criminals to kind of arrive at that point, and they never really did until the very end, where it flicks to the the end, and everyone suddenly arrived at the restaurant. Um, most of it is just kind of this this quite dark, violent story, as you say, um, with moments of very pitch black comedy and, and absurdity. Um, I think. The comedy, I, I liked the crime element of it, um, the idea of criminals running away, sort of reflecting upon their their lives and how they became broken and how they found each other. I like the idea of um, lost people sort of becoming a family, becoming a sort of patchwork family and realizing that they actually do need each other, realizing that it's there's more to life than just trying to get money and make money and escape and escape the law and escape your your demons escape your past that there is a sort of they'd found what they were looking for that was kind of sweet um but i don't think the comedy part of it really connected with me like i chuckled a few times but some of the some of the sort of comedic beats i found a bit disturbing like the where they're like where the, he starts shooting cows um and where he where uh, the leader like punches that woman in the face like i was like is this meant to be funny or sort of am i meant to sort of laugh out of shock or i don't know it was a bit it was a bit strange and like the um 
some of the locals kept saying these really racist kind of xenophobic things and I'm like is this are we meant to be I wasn't sure who to side with like a lot of the characters seemed really unlikable but you sort of understood kind of where they were coming from the more you learnt about them um but yeah I think I I enjoyed the first act more than more than where it went and this was something we've talked about in previous episodes where often foreign dramas you'll really be able to connect with but sometimes comedy we did a comedy called Day of the Wacko for Polish Cinema Roundtable, and it didn't quite connect with us, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's a, it's a culturally specific thing. Um, but I, I certainly enjoyed Flickering Lights more than that film. Yeah. Um, but what did you make of the, of the characters in their journey, um, Patrick? Did you have, like, a favorite character or a favorite performance? I like, uh, I like all the characters in general, but I think... Um... It's, it's sort of how they work together. That's um, well, like Thompson's uh, character. I think it was Peter mm-hmm. is uh, probably the best for me because oh, yeah. the way he he shows a person in, in like uh, uh, in withdrawal and the way he he does that is, is really amazing. And also the switch he does as soon as he you know mm. uh, gets let out uh, in his his character and his way of you know going at, at uh, problems is, is very good um so yeah of course my my, my favorite character is probably peter um hmm. but uh in general it's, it's just a really good movie about uh in my opinion about people who are so broke yeah that was quite an uplifting moment where he reflects he, he, because he's trapped in that whatever it was pantry he's forced to reflect on his past and the traumatic of you know experience that he had with his father locking him in the cupboard and um and then wanting to get out of that was quite yeah like sort of moving and showed an unusual level of depth for the characters what the characters were up until that point um and i think yeah that's probably common for all the characters they're kind of trapped in these traumatic moments like um Arne's relationship to guns and um stefan also running away from his family after the miscarriage um I think I think Arne was kind of even though he's kind of in some ways the most reprehensible character is like just so quick to resort to violence. I I also kind of liked his change where he he eventually just starts like hurting everyone, attacking animals, and it's really horrible to see. But eventually, as as the hunter says, he just needs to get something out of his system. And once he starts hunting and focusing his violence in this kind of structured way, he is able to kind of relax. And when he comes back to, to his friends, he's much more relaxed and chilled out and even is supportive of Stefan and his romance, which was surprising. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that that theme of characters who are broken or trapped, almost like they can't, they've been trying to escape it all their lives, like with drugs and violence and crime. And they're, they've, they're sort of, stuck in this place where they can't run away from it and they have to reflect on it and deal with it once and for all it's kind of interesting yeah, yeah. It, it, it is it is interesting that most of the characters here they they have some sort of uh break or traumatic thing that happened to them like uh, anna got abused as a child hmm. and um he resorts to violence it's just it's just very uh, interesting that uh and and very you know true that that People tend to replicate the things that that was the hurtful things that were done to yourself uh, as a child, um, and or try to you know fulfill whatever thing you, you needed as a child. 
uh, and and that's that's you know true for all the characters here. We have like Tolkien who who just wants his own place, mm. just wants to be his own has his own place. You have Peter who who just wants to get out. He just wants to be uh, accepted, and and he will he he does at the end get accepted. Also, he was forced to smoke, or his his father tried to force him to smoke a lot of cigars, which is like addictive, and he gets an addictive personality. Mm. Uh, that's also interesting. Uh, and then you have Anna who yeah got abused as, as as a child by his father. Yeah, which is uh, a strange sort of concoction of themes to put in a comedy like when i think of comedies even dramatic or crime comedies they tend to lean more towards the comedy side um than the dramatic side um i can't think of many yeah i don't know it's, a, it's an interesting mix because those are quite dark heavy themes um but it they do it quite well there's parts that didn't quite work for me but they they do sort of ride that line in an interesting way. Um, and a lot of it is sort of just the banter between the different men. Um, but you did have this uh, question about um, what the movie says about masculinity. And, mo- and a lot of the flashbacks sort of show the the bad male role models that a lot of these characters had. So I wonder if you had any more thoughts on, on uh, the, the theme of masculinity in the film. Yes. Um, when we talk about masculinity, it's, it's very much a, a topic about... Um, how people have been brought up to, you know, tackle the different problems in their life. And I think very much it's it's very obvious here that a lot of these characters have sort of a over-masculine, over-violent um, way of solving their problems, at least to begin with in the movie. And um, maybe it shouldn't be, you know, connected in that way to masculinity in general, but... Uh, it seems like they just go from hyper masculinity. Don't don't listen to each other's problems. Uh, you just suck it up in a way. And then and during the movie, they they sort of become more accepting towards each other and their, their problems. They help each other more. And even though there's basically no female characters that we we can connect to in the, in this movie, they sort of mellow out. In, in a way that sort of more 20, 2020, 2022-esque, um, you know, mentality at the end. They they, they sort of mature in a way uh, from from these small boys with an idea of what's masculine mm. to to actual, actual men who, who, you know, rely on each other and, and, and rest in, in their own ability to, you know, live their life. As they want to. Yeah, uh, it's just it's an interesting way of of, of showing that that um, they probably and and this is true for a lot of people in, in around the world that there are these lost people who are have, have no connection to what we would say is the general culture in in whatever country you're in, uh, and they tend to look like caricatures of uh, what mas- what masculinity. Sh- uh, is thought to be and stuff like that, and um, it's only by being confronted by other other people and other cultures and other in other areas of your life that you sort of maybe get, get like a reality check. And I think that's very much also a theme in in, in this uh, movie specifically. Yeah, and and the film sort of starts with Thorkill 
being unsatisfied or struggling with that role, that sort of violent role that's been etched out for him, where even when he comes home and there's a surprise party waiting for him, his immediate response is to open fire on the guests because he's just been conditioned mm-hmm. by that sense of fear and, and violence being like the only way to sort of survive in the world. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum is um, Stefan, who's like quite um, sympathetic and, and sensitive. Like even at, you know, at the beginning, you see them getting angry at this uh, this truck driver for delivering the wrong shipment and he's the only one saying you know give him a break don't hurt him um and then mm-hmm. sort of halfway through the film he starts reading this poem and crying the flickering lights poem which is what they named the restaurant after and um mm-hmm. he's really moved by it and two of the other characters are sort of you know listening to him um and then but uh but Arne is uh, is sort of making fun of him and mocking him, mocking him and calling him uh, calling him names for for tearing up and he quickly has to defend himself and say i, I wasn't crying so you can kind of see that that socialization of um, of men not being allowed to show their feelings, um, yeah, or risk being ridiculed in effect there. Um, but that's kind of the pivot yeah. where some of the characters are moving towards that, and, and whereas others are still holding on to that really um, macho persona, like Arn. Um, but um, what did you? I was curious about the poem because they named the restaurant Flickering Lights and the and the. The movie is named Flickering Lights, but I didn't quite understand the significance of it. Um, what did you think? Um, the the significance of the name is well, uh, to be fair, it's I think it's more like a joke in itself. Mm. Uh, it's um, because uh, the the author uh, of of that book of that that uh, poem is actually Torvedytlism, uh, not Ovedytlism, as 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 uh, the the movie says, which is uh, because the the mouse have have eaten the the mice have <laughs> eaten the, the the tea in the in the name of the yeah. in the book. Uh, so it's like it's, not, it's sort of like a, a reference to the idea that it's never going to be they're com- never going to be completely you know full and proper people. Mm. That's not how the book how this movie is going to end. It's it's like they are going to be their amalgamation, their approximation of what is normal. Uh, and that that's exactly also what you think uh, when you see when in the in the final scene where they go out and and uh, provide that that extravagant or maybe not so extravagant uh, meal for for uh, Togul's uh, ex-girlfriend and and her her new boyfriend who are going to review the, the the place the restaurant. Um, they they just put on a show and 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 try to understand what's what's really going on and what what's what's real, uh, like and and they get they come really close but never really reach like true normalcy. That's basically what it's supposed to, you know, portray is the the idea of not uh, being able to reach what what you really want because you're so broken. But uh, having having something. Even though it's not like truly like like everyone else, it's still something better than you can still improve on your life. Even though you won't, won't reach the same heights as or same uh, things as other people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, like all the characters in general, uh, are all the male characters in general have some sort of issue that doesn't really get resolved, but it it, it improves because they have this place now. Uh, the flickering lights. 
That's interesting, and it's a very anti-Hollywood way of making a movie where everything traditionally has to be wrapped up in a neat little bow and everyone's stories has to be completed and their arc has to be completed to some kind of satisfying conclusion. Whereas here it is, yeah, very, these people are very messy and they're not wholly redeemed. They're not wholly good. They're still very broken and uh, arguably bad people, but they're trying, they're trying to move towards something better. Um, yeah. Uh, as, as sort of uh as much of a patchwork of uh, individuals and a patchwork of the people as they are. Um, the the other the thing that's occurring to me now is the flashbacks. Um, I thought it was interesting how whenever they're remembering something, it doesn't the flashback scene doesn't start as a whole, but it kind of starts like this flashing thing, which I kind of evoked the mm-hmm. flickering light to me as well, like the idea of looking back at where you've come from, looking back at the darkness and the light. So the memories kind of flash and flicker in the periphery of your mind. Mm. And, and every now and then you look back and see where you've come and, and get glimpses at, at, at um, who you are or who you, where you might be going yeah. or where you might have come from. I think, I think that's right. But also, I mean, I think that's very real. I, I don't know if, about you guys, but I've, I've had several moments where I, was in a place and then suddenly I got like a, a flashback to something I did when I was young and and it's basically takes over your whole, your whole sensory system uh, and, and sometimes and usually for me at least it's, it's something stupid I did uh, and I go back and of course <laughs> oh, I, wish, I wish I hadn't done that uh, that's that's um, that's the power of, of the memories even though they're not like a true copies of what really happened they still have the power of you know dredging up a past and, and making you reflect on it uh, at, at opportune times which is yeah. um, very 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 useful as a for for humans because we need to you know be able to learn from our mistakes otherwise we you know demise, that's our demise as a race as a species yeah yeah just following the same habits without examining where they're leading you just doing it automatically um, did you have mm-hmm. a favorite sort of joke or funny moment in the film yeah yeah, my my favorite joke is definitely uh, where they're blowing they're blowing the uh, the egg whites and egg, egg yolks out of the eggs to make uh, it's a cultural thing in Denmark. You uh, blow the eggs uh, as they call them, as you as you call it, to make um, Easter eggs. You paint them afterwards and and hang them up or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the thing you do a tradition, and uh, and the way uh, the way the woman. Like, uh, she she harps on on Torgil, making making him, you know, so frustrated that he, you know, definitely does something that is not fu- that should not be funny in itself. Uh, hits her uh, as a resolve the way to resolve the uh, fr- building frustration. Hmm. Um, the way they the the friends afterwards try to you know mitigate that or try to mediate uh, so that he he calms down is that's the for me the funny part because it's they say oh that that's a sick chicken that that laid that egg oh. definitely not your <laughs> yeah yeah uh, the eggs the eggs broke the eggs wrong and stuff yeah trying try to soothe his uh, ego yeah that was funny yeah exactly and and that's actually become like a, a thing you say on for stuff like that's become a, a, a line that you would say as a joke oh really uh, for yeah 
uh, if it's like a computer, you could say that that's the sick chicken that laid that computer right there. Uh, you shouldn't worry about that. Uh, so, so that's uh, definitely my favorite uh, jo- joke or line. Other than that, I think um, Peter's um, "I get a hey, I get a hand to nation." That's uh, that whole where he's uh, going with Roll. And it's it's and me listening to myself saying these things, I I understand how how absurd and horrible it sounds, but but yeah, the the most extreme situations they they found a way to, you know, make it more absurd to the point of actually being sort of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's weird. I, I think I I think you need to watch it and you need to know that it's it's so absurd that that's why it's funny. That it's not meant to be. Uh, like a, ha- a manual to how to act in any situation. No, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. none of these people are role models in any way, or is supposed to be good people. Uh, that's very much <laughs> important. And I mean, that is a legitimate source of comedy. It like just watching bad people do awful things. It's sort of this has this cathartic release for the audience, where they just they're gobsmacked at what's happening. Um, I think my my biggest laughs were. Um, when uh, uh, Peter sort of escapes and, and sort of runs into the water, and um, mm. Thorn ki- Thorkill looks out at the at the bay and the forest and says, "Oh my God, it's so beautiful!" and it's this moment of uplift. And then Ahn says, "You're stepping on a condom," <laughs> and then he reaches mm. down and says, "Oh, it's got a couple of little floaters in there," and starts chasing him with it. <laughs> um, and the other moment. Yeah which I think hits so well is at the very end where you're expecting this triumphant ending of his girl, of his ex partner, you know, giving him this great review and saying what a, what a great done he's, job he's done turning his life around. <laughs> she says, this is by, by far the worst restaurant I have ever dined in, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because <laughs> they tried the best. <laughs> that was funny too. Yeah. Which goes into that theme of, you know, it doesn't matter if you succeed. It's, it's just as long as you give it a go, that's, that's worth it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we better move on. Um, Bina, would you like to tell us about our next movie? Um, so the movie I want to discuss is a very obvious one, probably, probably because it's quite recent and quite well known. And in my experience of watching art house Danish movies that tend to be really traumatic, um, this one is actually a beautiful comedy, but with a serious heart and serious emotional payoff. It's called Another Round. Or how do you pronounce this in Danish? Is it druk? Druk. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, and it was released in, I guess, 21. I mean, I saw it in October 2020 in the first lockdown London Film Festival, so at home, which was kind of weird. But it, it was just the movie in that horrible year that I needed because it was a movie all about friendship and joyous release by the end but it, it it reflected some of the dark backing of the world so the the concept is you've got four um old friends kind of middle-aged middle-class danish men kind of in that talking head song is this my beautiful wife is this my beautiful car how did i get here you know they're sort of you know superficially kind of okay like one's a height the the mats mickelson character as a high school teacher they're all living, you know, good enough lives, I guess, but maybe hitting a bit of a midlife crisis. And they meet for a dinner and they have this um, conversation where one says there's this anecdote that apparently, scientifically, the optimal blood alcohol level is just ever so slightly, ever so slightly 
um, intoxicated. So not so intoxicated people would notice, but just a little bit to take the edge off. Um, so they all decide that they're going to try for science, a cockamamie experiment where every day they just try and keep their blood alcohol level just a little bit elevated um, and to see what that does to them, like to report back and see what happens. And at first, it seems like it's really working. They feel more confident, more loose, more happy. Um, the Math Mickelson character at the start is this high school teacher who clearly does not engage with his students at all. And they're really unimpressed with him. And then with that little bit of alcohol kind of turns into like the teacher in Dead Poet Society where he's super inspirational. Um, so it all seems to be going well, but they don't stop there, obviously, human beings being what they are. So then they decide to raise it even a little bit higher. And this is where the movie gets um, a little bit darker and more profound because they show that at this point then they are turning up to work drunk and it is having an impact on their families. Um, you know, they feel still like they're having the time of their lives, but you do see the impact of their of their drinking on their surroundings. And, you know, as someone who's experienced alcoholism um, in my wider family and friendship group, it, it that really, I found very moving as a portrayal because it's not full-blown alcoholism at this point, but you, you are already seeing the impact it's having um, on their on their wider group of people who love them and know them. Um, and then obviously you get the idea that self-medication doesn't really tackle the underlying problems. So for, for some of them, bar one, there is that capacity to realize they've gone too far and to pull back. And sadly spoilers for one of one of them, it's just kind of exacerbated what was already a lot of underlying frustration and pain um, and he ends up not surviving the film, if I put it in that vague term, in case anyone wants to watch it and not be utterly spoiled. And I think that's a kind of a really I was wondering when I sort of started watching it, how they were going to tackle the dark side of drinking. And I think it's really important that the director, Thomas Vinterberg, did tackle that um, and did show that. So what then happens as you reach the sort of the final act of this film where this this guy who was already depressed it's been exacerbated and he hasn't come through this experiment is that somehow you know the friendship survived they kind of revert to their to their normal lives sort of older wiser um, probably more profoundly and Mass Mickelson who knew had completed dance training in real life before he became an actor he wanted to be a dancer never never had that idea and there's this wonderful um, cathartic scene at the end, which I think is the one that sort of became very well known and kind of is probably what won a lot of people's hearts about this movie, where he kind of he's having his final can and he stumbles across a group of high school kids who've just had their final day at school and are just like hanging out by the by the shore, by the water. And they're dancing to some cheesy dance music and he just joins in and starts dancing in this incredibly unstructured, loose, but really kind of cathartic, passionate way. And ends with this final, wonderful, joyous leap into the water, almost like cleansing himself of this experience that he's gone through. And it's just so amazing. I mean, I think it just felt like, God, wouldn't we all want to do that in the midst of second lockdown? Um, so I really love this film. I think Thomas Vinterberg, who directed it and also co-wrote it, it's this beautiful balance because some of the scenes are just so elegantly put together and so elegantly filmed. This isn't dogma. It's much more, in a way, polished, controlled than that. Um, 
in the emotional scenes, it's incredibly intimate, which I think you do get that carry through from dogma, this idea that it does feel like real relationships and real conversations rather than something too stagey and dramatic. Um, I think that the co-writer, Tobias Lindholm, as well, deserves praise. It's a very truthful script. I mean, as I enter that kind of age cohort of the characters, I think some of the stuff it tackles about frustration, feeling your big life choices have been made, opportunities closing down, sort of, it feels so truthful. But it's also really, really funny. And getting that um, that balance right, I think, is is probably pretty tricky to do. So it did the festival circuit. It was it won lots of audience awards. So I think at Toronto it got the audience award. London it was hugely popular, and then obviously it went on to be um, nominated for and win lots of best foreign film awards of um, 2021. So I think it did really really well, and deservedly so. I mean it's it's rare to find a film that you love that you wouldn't change a single thing. Like even some of my all time favorite films, there are little things I would tweak, but this one I just think is an absolutely beautiful film and a real showcase for all of the lead actors and I think he gets to see Maz Mikkelsen in a in a different light um which I love you know I, I just think it's it's really fantastic and I hope you guys enjoyed it too um yeah I really enjoyed it this is my first time watching it and uh I found it very engaging I didn't necessarily find it comedic I thought it erred more on the dramatic side I found it was more just sort of enjoyable like the the scenes of them having fun and running amok with each other definitely made me crack a smile but not as much a comedic tone um, as I was expecting but I really enjoyed it I thought it was uh, really well drawn characters you really felt their pain and their frustration um, and that sense of finding their groove back again I thought it did did a good job sort of contrasting the the spirit and the energy and the hopes and dreams of all the young students with these uh, four men who feel like, yeah, they're past their best years and, and their dreams have had to be sort of compromised. And they've kind of got everything they wanted in a way, or they've, they've achieved these comfortable lives. But the spirit that had sort of moved them when they were younger has kind of dissipated in some way. So it's a film about midlife crisis, um, that I think is really well performed. And I think that the film definitely rests on the performances, especially Mads Mikkelsen. And his transformation as a character throughout the film is really impressive. Um, especially those scenes in the classroom where he's so done and defeated and just uh, on autopilot. And you can see the confusion and disappointment in his students and then him being able to transition into this really uh, passionate, engaging teacher is really um, enjoyable um, and uplifting. And um, I thought the film, like, doesn't, it's an interesting commentary on alcoholism, on, sorry, on drinking rather, because it doesn't necessarily condemn it. And in some ways, it, condo it condones it by the end of the film. It's basically saying, like, as human beings, we are really anxious and sometimes we need to take the edge off or let off some steam. And it can go too far, obviously, but, um, but you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And sometimes you do need to let loose. And um, that's part of being human is kind of getting out of your own head <laughs> at times um, and just losing control. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a really good film from start to finish. I loved it. Yeah, and I think uh, you just hit on something that's very, you know, thematic of like very danish in, in a sense that 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 um, you know point of saying that 
uh, alcohol is is good for something. It's good for getting rid of some inhibitions or just getting just getting you know away from what's holding you back to begin with, and then you can be your true self. That's at least <laughs> the way of Danish people use alcohol as a tool for socializing uh, or acting in a social arena. Um, and and the way it's the way it's emblematic of Denmark is also because it's in both like both in Norway and in Sweden, um, they have like a lot of um, they have a different culture around alcohol. Uh, it's either controlled by the state or just very expensive in general because you know too much alcohol is not good for you. So they put taxes on it so so that it becomes expensive to drink too much. Um, but in Denmark, we've always had like a culture of you'll handle yourself, right? Everyone is expected to learn how to uh, handle alcohol um, as they turn into an adult. So they drink a, a lot of young people in Denmark. They drink a lot uh, during you know high school and and maybe also a bit of uni. But as as time goes on, they're expected to sort of find a balance. Not not to stop. I think it's actually uh, it's become more accepted now not to drink and have like a an, a decision. I don't drink at parties, but um, but it's still for in some arenas. It's still sort of you you you're always offered a drink when you go to a party, even though you might not want to begin with. So 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 it's very much embedded in our culture, and that this movie shows very well that. It's, there's no expectation of you not drinking or finding out that you want to completely drop drinking, but uh, find the balance in your life. That's also a very important thing about alcohol for, for Danish people. Yeah, I think it also does a good job showing the socialization of drinking and the, the peer pressure that obviously it's a big part of the being a student or being a, a graduate is celebrating and you certainly don't want to be excluded from that celebration or that 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 uh, social cohort and their rituals. But also even among the the four men, like there's every scene where one of them starts to doubt or starts to err on the side of caution around drinking. The, the three others, you know, encourage him. No, no, come on, join us for a drink. Join us for a drink. Have a bit more. Give it a go. So you can see how so much of it is. Uh, a social element or a social lubricant or a, or a social a ritual that you don't want to be excluded from because it's not so much the alcohol you're missing, but it's that social connection and being on the same like wavelength as everyone else. Cause no one wants to be the only sober one <laughs> at a party. Cause it's just, you're, you're on no. a different wavelength from everyone else. Mm. A, a couple of comments, Mike, I thought it was really interesting what Patrick said about um, in Denmark, having a different attitude towards drinking that you'll kind of figure it out yourself because I think um, that is the perception of not Denmark, but Sweden during the pandemic. Like, you'll, you you guys know what's sensible. Figure it out. Whereas other countries went for more sort of like mandatory measures, which I think is really fascinating. Maybe that's just part of being a more sort of progressive, sensible country that you can take that attitude. Um, and I think the movie did capture the peer pressure really well. Um, and something we've noticed recently as we're not drinking anymore was is that 
it's always the default that you will, like this idea that you go to a party, someone will just offer you a drink and you almost have to give a reason why not. Uh, oh, I'm driving or, mm. or I'm on medication. Like it, it, the default setting is a wine glass at the table, right, in our societies. And it really made me think about that. And it's something I've observed recently as well and been really thinking about. Like it's quite an interesting thing in Western culture, isn't it? That, def- that socializing defaults to also drinking. Mm. Um, but yeah. And the way that the film presents it as both uh this kind of rowdy debaucherous explosion with the kids but also in the restaurant it's it's presented in this very refined sophisticated um sort of gastronomic uh experience that that you couldn't possibly uh it exclude that ingredient from that experience but it's the same substance it's just presented in different ways to different classes or different ages of people yeah, so it's a sophisticated representation. It's almost like, here, we're going to give you the facts. Yes, if you're an introverted, disengaged, disenfranchised teacher, maybe it does make you temporarily better at some point and more kind of, you know, overcoming your inhibitions and frustrations. But then look at this dark underbelly to it. So I feel it is quite, to your point, it is quite a non judgmental film. It's just like, this is the impact it could have in various ways. You'll, you'll, we'll figure out where you sit on that line, you know, um, which has really grown up. I'm not sure this film tackling over drinking and, and some of its tragic consequences could or would have been made in this way in America or England. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm almost certainly sure it wouldn't have been. No, it's certainly drinking to excess is almost universally depicted as a problem as either the practice of a sort of villainous character or a kind of a fall from grace uh, a fall into violence and abuse and 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 yeah negative toxic um behavior it's it's rarely shown as a tool of um i don't know certainly drugs are in in different movies but alcohol is yeah often a a villainous substance in film yeah, and there's a reason why people drink, right? We're not all morons. So if we get in trouble for drinking too much, it's because at first it is intensely pleasurable and it does bring benefits, right, and release and catharsis. So I think it's honest about, you know, like when I watch a lot of drug films, like doing drugs always so miserable. And I think, well, there's a reason people start doing them, right? Because at, at the start, it does feel better. So um, you've got to be honest about that. The other thing I quite liked about the film is, like there's, you know, in mainstream Western films, there's a lot of buddy movies. Like so, so male friendship is always seen in the context of like two guys, you know, like typical buddy, buddy cop movies, I guess. Um, like sort of all, typically quite different in personality. It's quite rare to see a group of men having fun together or going through life together and being very honest about or not honest about their emotions and the real shit they're going through. And I was just trying to think of other films I know where there's an ensemble of men just dealing with life. And it just feels that that was very unique. And maybe that's why it resonated, because people hadn't seen much of it before and there was a need for it. Um, maybe also in the second pound, like lockdown, when I feel that going through lockdown, a lot of my friends who were female found it easier to use virtual and social media to keep up with each other, whereas a lot of the guys... Without that, oh, yeah, let's all go down the pub on a Thursday night and have a chat and shoot the breeze. That they, they almost found it harder to transition to that, that online life. And maybe that speaks to the popularity of this film. Yeah, and I guess it is. it can be a very gendered thing, depending on what you're drinking. But the idea of going to the pub to drink beer is traditionally a very male thing. Um, 
and that is a way for for male gathering or male bonding to occur outside the home um so that is a ritual maybe that was disrupted by the pandemic or but th- that's certainly something you see uh, in this film but um i thought it was interesting that two films in a row from denmark are about four middle-aged men going through midlife crisis flickering lights and another round yeah, I can't even name two films that are British that have four middle-aged men dealing with life. Sorry. <laughs> and I've seen a lot more British film than, than Danish film. Yeah, it is. It is very, you know, as I think it's it is it is the uh, the contract of trying to go to something maybe not always realistic but true. Like the 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 feeling is true of and 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 from Thomas Winterberg or. Anna's Thomas Jensen or any of those directors, I think you have to speak to what you know. Really, I I I think uh, that that's the story you need to tell. And and this is a very like the theme of of having you know men not knowing whether or not they're on the right track of their life is you know I think pretty sure there's some people who are completely figured out by the time they hit midlife, uh, but. Uh, I, I think it's more true that most of us need to confront our mor- mortality at some point, and usually in the midlife area the time, their life. And yeah, it is good that these movies come out to help you, you know, the future people in midlife crisis to, you know, reflect on at least what what to do and what not to do, how how far it can go out if you want to, you know, find yourself. Uh, Please don't do as uh, as one of the people in this movie, at least, right? Yeah, yeah. Another thing I really enjoyed about the film was the camera work and how it almost like embodies their different levels of sobriety or intoxication. Like the the, the early scenes in the film are very still and dimly lit, and the sound is almost muted in a way. Um, but then as they start to drink, the camera almost sort of swings back and forth towards the character to imitate this kind of slightly off-balance feeling and kind of swings back and forth, but it also gives it this liveliness. And then when they're getting really drunk, for example, in the store or after Martin finds out about his wife's infidelity, it, it almost sort of becomes chaotic or it's following, the, it, it almost can't keep up with the characters as they crash and stumble around a room. Um, and then the final, the final scene is amazing. Like it's so, it's this sort of almost perfect fluidity where the camera is just swimming around the the scene, around all these um, dancing students following Martin as he does this amazing dance performance, swinging back and forth yeah. underneath, over the top, cartwheeling, and then jumping yeah. into the ocean. It's, it's just so <laughs> fluid and perfect. One of the reviewers in England just said it was almost as if the camera was in on the experiment. Mm. So it was becoming drunker as they became drunker. And then as Martin was having his cathartic moments, so it was for camera. It had found the perfect balance between static um, introversion and the sort of more kind of slightly chaotic and had just become pure elegant dance. Mm. And I thought that was really nice getting it. Yeah, elegance. And another word they use to describe it is poise. You're more poised when you just have a little bit to drink. Um, and yeah, it's such a such an amazing final scene. Like it's it's so uplifting and uh, it just leaves you on such an amazing feeling. 
And also, if you couldn't admire Mass Mickelson more, you know, phenomenal actor, really good looking, seems to be a genuinely nice guy. He <laughs> hasn't let his fame go to his head. And then he turns out to be an amazing trained dancer as well. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I thought it'd be like a, a double or something that would do it, but it was all him. And that made it all the better that you could see his face. Yeah, so we, then- we listened to um, a Q&A with Thomas Vinterberg after the film, like a, a sort of Zoom version of that. And they were like, people were asking about it. And he was like, yeah, so we thought we were going to have to get in a choreographer and sort of figure this out. And it turns out, like, none of us knew that he actually is, like, a really amazing dancer. And he was so um, excited to be able to dance. So uh, let's jump to the final film, which is me. Uh, So Audet, which means the word in English, is a 1955 drama directed by Carl Theodor Dreyer. It is set on a farm in rural Denmark, and it tells the story of the Borgen family. The devout widower Morten is the patriarch. His eldest son, Mikkel, has no faith, but is happily married to the pious Iga, uh, who is pregnant with their third child. Morten's middle child, Johannes, has recently suffered a mental breakdown and believes himself to be Jesus Christ. Morton's youngest son, Anders, is lovesick for the daughter of a rival family. Audet is a very slow and somber film, and I confess I was a little unengaged in the first act. However, I thought the filmmaker very skillfully draws you into the world and this family, and about halfway through I found myself caring for the characters and really moved by what they go through. The performances are all excellent, especially the actor who plays Morton. Another absorbing element of the film is the cinematography, which consists of long takes that swim around the set as the drama unfolds. Despite the simplicity of the plot and the sparseness of the sets, the film offers a unique exploration of family, religion, and faith, and boasts a genuinely suspenseful and shocking ending. So, what did you guys think of Audette? I think it's a, it was a really interesting, very moving movie. Uh, as you said, it was difficult to get engaged to begin with because there was no real action or anything. It was just people talking. Like we, we, we need to we needed to see the characters mm. and what they were about. And they're no they're not exceptional or extravagant in any way. They they live the simple life in, in Western Jutland. Uh, mm. which is uh, for 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 the cho- the choice of location it's it's very very poignant because in that area, you would you would have very barren uh, soil, uh, very uh, and and you that would be the the place where you live the hard life, which also breeds you know uh, more extreme Christianity uh, and stuff like that. So it's very it's very poignant the choice of being in that area, Western Jutland. Also, I know that uh, was co- the 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 playwright Carl Carl it's something that the uh, he also came from from there but uh in general it's a very uh, poignant uh, choice and i think it's it's very good and i got got very much uh drawn in at the end especially especially about the way she, the the heart of of the the group the family inga she losing her would would certainly spell the doom for the family so so it was you're sort of rooting for her to come back so that you would you know have a so that the family could survive, I think. The, I read a poignant bit of trivia about the original playwright, Carl Monk, I think his name was, who was um, killed by the Nazis after they invaded Denmark and he spoke out against Hitler. 
and the Gestapo basically kidnapped him and you know killed him and left him in a field. And uh, several points in the film, they're riding a carriage or riding a horse along a track in the field, and they pass a cross. And apparently, that's the actual cross where Karl Monk's uh, body was found, but after being murdered. Yeah, he's actually become like a patron saint in in, in Denmark mm. uh, afterwards. Karl Monk, um, he he did write a lot of. Um, christian plays about morality and stuff like that and and uh, did a lot like him and and actually a person was mentioned as one of the faiths one of the sects the uh, bolgen family uh, follows Grundvi, those two are pretty uh, influential in the, like the modern way of thinking christianity mm-hmm. so so yeah it's a it's a very uh, meaningful uh, choice to have him uh, you know, represented in in the filmatization of his his uh, his play, because this is Kai Monk's play, just filmed filmatized. Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily cut and dry about its depiction of Christianity. Like, I guess you could argue the ending is an argument that you know Christianity is the the correct belief because that's ultimately what resurrects Iga. But it felt like. It sympathized with all of the characters, like all of the characters, even when they're in conflict with one another, are complex and flawed and they have their own beliefs and their own convictions. And they're really just trying to do what's right according to their interpretation of the world. And some characters are atheists, some characters are sort of Christian, but a bit more liberal. Some some characters are a bit more conservative. Um, Some believe they are Jesus Christ. But... um, it's really, I felt like it showed religion as this way of trying to make sense of the world and trying to make sense of a world that is often really hard. You talked about the, the place they're living. It's a really hard place to live and, and really hard events that don't make sense. Like why would such a, a moral and kind person like Iga lose her child, lose her life? That, that What kind of God would allow that? How do you make sense of that? Um, so I felt like it was an interesting exploration of believing in something despite hardship, believing in something to make sense of hardship and, and the sort of the ways that religion can create conflict between people, um, the sectarianism that divides families, that divides communities. I thought that was interesting as well. Um, and just the, yeah, just the pain of trying to make sense of the world. And trying to do the right thing despite, you know, hard circumstances, I thought was really moving. Very, very humane depiction of people. Did you get a chance to see the film, Bina? Yes, I did. First time I watched it was in um, a cinema, proper celluloid. And it was, I think, worth seeing because like Patrick, I mean, I did struggle a bit with engaging with the characters and the emotional and, I guess, ideological arc of it because... I think in a way those religious debates and struggles, if you're not religious, and we, we live in a different time, right, from when this was written, hmm. or maybe we don't actually give a America, maybe yeah. this is very relevant for some people. It just felt very far from my own experience, um, so I found it quite hard to empathise with some of the struggles that were going on. But I think why it's rightly acclaimed, right, like if you read polls of, like, you know, critics' polls of the best films of all time or whatever... 
this is often like in the top 10 or top 20 films of all time. And I think the reason is probably um, because of the cinematography. And I think it looks luscious. And we watched it um, together, actually, and we managed to get a 4K restoration on disc, which was not cheap, but it's so worth it. I mean, it the way the framing is done, and it reminded me almost of a kind of a proto um, Stanley Kubrick, you know, like films like Barry Lyndon, where the framing is so deliberate mm. and what is appearing in the shot is so deliberate that it's just stunning to look at. I mean, the setups are amazing. And I feel I was I was watching a little there was a little sort of accompanying documentary on the desk that said that the way he shot it, which no one would do now because it's so expensive, is he would block the action in the morning and then just literally shoot one setup every afternoon. And that um, at the time it was common to have two or three lights on set and he would have 20. So like just real meticulous care to how it looked. And the other thing that shocked me was he didn't use a, a light finder. So he just did it all by eye. Like he didn't use a little widget. Sometimes if you see people making films, they put this little thing they put to their eyes to sort of like figure out exactly what the light levels are as a cinematographer. So I just think of its time, technically it's so audacious and it looks so beautiful. And I think it's just um, to sound really pretentious. I think it's like an important film and I'm really glad you picked it. Um, but but tough going. I think it, it's, I think another round is tough, especially we should have put a trigger warning. If you've got experience of alcoholism in your family, it's tough. Um, but this is tough in a different way for modern audiences. But yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. it, glad it you picked. It's a, it, it, it kind of, I know this sounds weird, but it feels like an old movie, um, both in its themes and its style. And it's it sort of, it has, at least in the beginning, it feels very uncinematic, uncinematic the way we think about cinema. The, uh, the characters are not very emotional initially. They, they're just going about this very humdrum existence. Um, it's, a lot of it takes place in this one kitchen slash dining area. It's very sparsely decorated. Um, they're not making these big proclamations. There's not these major conflicts that we associate with cinematic drama. Obviously, it becomes more dramatic because it's all character focused and because it does all of that establishing the characters' motivations. And but in another way, I mean, when you think about the technicalities of what the directors actually achieved, it is amazing. The fact that you're almost like a another person in that room. Like there's very few cuts. They're all medium shots. You're basically just sitting there looking from character to character um, as it unfolds. You feel like you're in that room. And um, and the framing, like if you think about what must have been achieved, like because sometimes the characters, sometimes the ca camera is following the characters, but sometimes it's almost like the characters are following the camera, like the frame moves ahead of them and they enter it or vice versa. And it all just seems to flow like this amazingly choreographed ballet but it doesn't feel labored in any sense it feels remarkably smooth like you're just like an, a human gaze wandering around the room um it's really effective i found i also want to mention that um that some of the outside shots sort of reminded me of, of the way kurosawa also akira kurosawa also shots shoots his movies very much a wind theme and like this is the, the, the nature uh, telling being part of the storytelling, um, I was uh, I I got transported very much, uh, very close to very quickly into like uh, Seven Samurais uh, and the way they use you know, wind and and the grass and everything uh, here as well. 
it's very very well shot also on the outside shots yeah that's a good point the wind has a big presence in the film and it adds to this sort of i don't know this feeling of unease or this feeling of existential angst like there's sort of this yeah i don't, I don't know exactly how to describe it but it makes it's it sort of like it's sort of like the spirit of of the area and yeah. it's it's a, it's a hard life it's, it's the spirit embodies uh, this area embodies the people there the 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 two old men who have lived here for a long time created their life they they see life this hard hard thing that they've had to endure for a long time to you know to cement their legacy and their their fate into an, another generation and they want to secure that because they are the the, the keepers of what is meaningful for them and for what they think is meaningful for the area uh, for the next generations it's very um yeah poignant yeah and, and you feel that hardship of their lives and the fact that they don't have great wealth necessarily they don't have um, riches or whatever you want to call it or power but they have their faith and their faith yeah. is what has allowed them to survive in this harsh place and they're sticking to it and it's very much as much as it's helped them, it's kind of trapped them in a way and separated them from each other and kept them entombed in these little fortresses of belief. Um, but yeah, the wind definitely just evokes this mm. sparseness and this emptiness and this sense of um, scarcity. Yeah, um, I don't know how much we want to go into it, but it, it, the, this, the place specifically is, is known for its, its, its poor soil. Uh, and it's it's sort of the way it was met, made is because of the uh, last ice age, all the all the sand and stuff that it, it went and and ended up in the, in this area. So it's very sandy, very very coarse dirt. Uh, and uh, on top of that, uh, people used to and still do burn burn the whole if the fields down so that they can uh, you know sow whatever um, how much you know fertility there is there. Uh, so it's sort of it's very much a like human influenced uh, landscape that sort of talks to the whole like an, an older sort of outdated way of looking at nature. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very specifically poignant that the Western Jutland has been cho chosen as a, the scene, the the area for this location for this. It's mm -hmm. very good, very good. I keep on talking about the the area itself. Yeah, no, thanks, Patrick. That's a really, really valuable insight. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up soon. Um, but before we go, I was wondering if there was any other Danish films that you'd recommend. You want to go first, Bina? Yeah, I mean, people need to watch the Pusher trilogy, right? It's just so good. It's just if you love gangster films, if you like crime films, if you like things that are dark, but also darkly comic, it's just so good. And if you love Matt Mickelson, do that. Um, I think you go next, Patrick, and then I'll, I'll I'll see if there's any others I should be recommending. Let me just yeah, I think have, in I have a, my head. I have a whole list. I'm I'm sorry, but I have a whole list of movies depending on what you want. If you want a horror movie, like oh. really disturbing horror movie, then watch uh, Night Watch. Uh, if you want a sort of like a uh, Ocean's Eleven com comedic, uh, like uh, Har Laurel and Hardy uh, movie uh, series, then watch The Olsen Gang. If you want to know what Dogma is, is about, 
watch celebration um if you want a a really uh, like comforting heart heartfelt uh, musical watch meet me on Casapaya. and if you want like uh, a really funny and cute rom-com then watch Einstein. Uh, those are really good movies and there's a lot of other movies that if you look up any list like the best movie you'll find a lot of very very strongly themed movies that are very like it, it will shock you or or move you in some way and that's general what, what we do well in Denmark is in modern cinema is to shock you I tell you what, I'll give another couple hints. If people want to see what Lars von Trier is about, because he is, I guess, in contemporary times, the most um, notorious director, check out Breaking the Waves, which I think is probably his best. Um, yeah, and Kingdom, his TV show, which is like this dark comedy, almost Twin, Peak, Twin Peaks like that's set in a Danish hospital. Check that out. Yeah. And then if you have kids and you have kids that can cope with subtitles or maybe you can get an audio version, there's a really hilarious um, kids animated film, independent film from Denmark called Turkle in Trouble that came out in 2007. Yeah. And to me, it's like a cult comedy. It's just so hilarious. It's about this like little kid who's in school and he's being bullied and he's like in unrequited love. And the local like, you know, child kids are bullying him. Um, it's just it's just like one of the most I mean it's so Danish because it is so unflinching in its depiction of how horrific like primary school can be but it's just so so good and um, there's a really lovely we were talking to Paul Patrick about sort of like nephew uncle relationships he's got this hilarious uncle Stuart Mm. Um, and you get it it did it it did come out in England with a an English dubbed soundtrack for the kiddies Um, but maybe watch it first before you uh, show it to the kiddies Mm. Like just speaking of a cute kitty, hello. Molly wanted to say hello. No, go and try. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's been said, but um, I would recommend the Celebration, which is the sort of the first Dogma ninety five film. Yes, darling. It's a really interesting film. Very uncomfortable. It's basically about a uh, the <laughs> birthday party of like a a man in his sixties, and all his children come, and they're all very dysfunctional. Yes, darling. Why don't you go have a crawl? And the oldest son reveals something um, very uh, distressing at the party and it throws everything into turmoil. Um, But it is shot according to the Dogma 95 Vow of Chastity, which means uh, all natural lighting, no additional sound. It only uses props uh, that would be in that location. Uh, It's all shot within a single day. So it's a it's an interesting experiment um, that is very effective as a story and as a presentation. Um, uh, but I have not seen The Idiots, which is kind of the second official Dogma 95 film. So I would like to check out that film at some point. But I definitely co-sign the Pusher trilogy, um, which is the debut of Nicholas Winding Refn and uh, Mads Mikkelsen. And it's an awesome crime film. Um, and it's interesting because it's sort of it shifts from character to character for each film. So the sort of the side character, Mads Mikkelsen, is the star of the second film. And then the villain of the first film is the star of the third film. So it shows uh, the Copenhagen criminal underbelly from several points of view. And it's just really well made film. Mm. Sorry. She's co-signing that too. She's excited. (laughs) You're co-signing too, Malia? No, you're too little for the Pusher trilogy. 
Uh, all right. I think I've already asked you this, Bina, but um, Patrick, do you have any other film, uh, other countries you'd like us to uh, venture to in future episodes of the Movie Passport? I can't remember. Have you done Sweden yet? No, haven't done Sweden. That, that's a good good one. Sweden or Jap- Japan, those are my, like, the other two countries, apart from America, of course, that I've watched movies from, from like, several different movies. So... Have you been so, to Japan, Patrick? I haven't yet. Okay. But I've studied Japanese. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'd love for you to be on, because I don't think we have any... I don't think we have any podcasters from Japan, but if you studied it, I'd definitely love to have you on someone with knowledge of the country and the language. Yeah, yeah. So, so those two, Sweden and Japan, those are my two. Uh, that would be my two favorites for for next ones. I'm putting you down for Sweden and Japan whenever we get there. All yeah. Right. Thanks, guys. This has been fun. Uh, that brings us to the end of this installment of the Movie Passport. Let us know what you thought of the episode and if you have any other uh, Danish movie recommendations and let us know what other world movies you'd like to hear us discuss. You can leave comments or questions on our WordPress page and join us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord server. I'd like to thank my fellow hosts for this episode, Patrick and Bina, and thank you for listening. Goodbye, or as the Danes say, visis. Visis.